We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Jordan. Welcome to the show. Hello. It's episode eight today, which is... Demonic Possessions. Ooh, are you scared? No. No? Are you scared? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) How's everybody doing? How you doing, Jord? I'm good. My knee hurts. Oh, yeah. Do you want to tell them about it? I fell. (laughs) (laughs) I was running, and And then I hit some dirt, and I fucking ate shit. His knee is all jacked up. It's a little fucked. It's got some soil in there, I think, for sure. Some dirt. Yeah, there's some earth in me. Yeah. And then his arm's definitely broken. Yeah, I was running in a park, and this whole park has one, like, sign in it. And the, I slid and fell right into this sign. Like, the pole of the sign slid, like, ten feet right into it. The one fucking pole. You got you. Yeah. I fucked my arm all up, too. It's, like, bent. No, it's not bent. It's just a little fucked. I don't think that's how it normally looks. It's just a little crooked, you know? Yeah. There's an indentation. I'm not worried about it. Of the pole. <laughs> in your bone. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a right. doctor. I just drank some milk. We're gonna be all right. I think it's uh, broken. Nah, it don't hurt. He's a trooper, you know. I was like sitting there. I was thank God I was the only one in the park. Yeah. Because I it was bad. I told him he's only got a couple years left for him to pop up like that. I would have called nine one one. Yeah. Runner down. I wouldn't have been running. First off, let's just get <laughs> that out of the way. But walking fast, perhaps. Yeah. Oh, I finished the run, though, so that's good. Good. You're a man. Didn't feel well, but that's all right. Yeah. Looks terrible. You need to come up with maybe a better story. Like what? I don't know. Like you were running from somebody chasing you. I was running from a demonic possession. Yes. Running from the devil. The devil. (laughs) Okay, so guess what we did since last time we recorded? This is going to be news to me. I don't know what we did. <laughs> we hit 1.3 thousand listeners. Yeah. Or 1,300, some might say. Yeah, pretty awesome. That's amazing. We're so famous. I need to get some bigger, like, uh, sunglasses for the paparazzi. Oh, my God. <laughs> All that Dayton, Ohio paparazzi. <laughs> They're following me. Yeah. Okay. You want to talk about our store? Yes. Uh... Uh, mysteryhistorypodcast.com is our store and also has a catalog of all our episodes. We got some merch on there. We got shirts, hoodies, sweaters, and pillows, decorative pillows. <laughs> Get one yeah. today. Stickers, too. Those stickers are pretty sweet looking. Yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have Patreon. We do. There's a link to the Patreon from the website, or it's just patreon.com slash. Mr. History Podcast. Yes. Please donate yep. so we can bring you better quality and possibly fix Jordy's broken arm. Just a dollar a month. Need these hospital bills. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So we're going to shout out our favorite podcast, Dead Academy Podcast. Mm-hmm. Go over and give those <clears throat> girls a listen. Yep. Dead Academy Podcast uh, on Instagram, Facebook. Um, in anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they talk about true crime, paranormal stuff. Um, I know Fallon just went on a trip to Indiana to go check out some sites. And um, so go go follow them and give them their your support. 
Also, Hook CMEC. We want to give those guys a shout out. We are partnering with them to, um, and they are, have been sharing our content. So yeah. go go check them out. We appreciate them very much. Mm-hmm. All right. What else you got to say? Anything? Uh, no. It's just just living, you know. L i v i n. Yep. I'm trying hmm. to think. I thought like I did have something to say, but it's just gone now. So. Hmm. I'm used to that. It's got that dumb look on my face. Yeah, always. <laughs> and I got to look at you for like. Sorry about that. However long this episode is. We'll probably put a mirror up. Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, the problem is, is we kind of look alike. Your face is my face, yeah. So am I saying I look dumb? Mm-hmm. Damn it. Got I'm me. not saying you're wrong. <laughs> okay. Well, shall we get into it? Yes. Demonic possessions. Okay. So I'm going to give you the definition of a demonic possession. You ready? No. Okay. I'm going to go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Demonic possession involves the belief that an alien, spirit, demon, or entity controls a person's actions. Those who claim to be possessed say symptoms of demonic possession include missing memories, perceptional distortions, loss of sense of control, a hyper-suggestibility. Have you been possessed before? No. You're aggressive. That is not the same. Yeah, you definitely are possessed. (laughs) Loss of sense of control and hypersuggestibility. What about? I can get you to pretty much do anything. What? By suggesting it. No. Not true. You fight me a little bit, but then you come around. Like what? I don't know. Like, go with me to Walmart. No. Come on. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess you're right. Maybe uh, I am possessed. I think you're possessed. Okay, so Eric <clears throat> Bergenen was a an American anthropologist known primarily for her work on possession, trance, and other altered states of consciousness. She found in a study of 488 societies worldwide that 74% believe in possession by spirits, with the highest number of believing societies in Pacific cultures, not specific, Pacific. Pacific, gotcha. Pacific, like Pacific Islander. You know what I mean? Like Hawaiians, gotcha. Yeah. And the lowest incident among Native Americans of both North and South America. Hmm. We're Native American. A little bit. Cherokee people. Cherokee people. Cherokee pride. (laughs) (laughs) So proud to live and so proud to die. Is that how that song goes? I think so. Mm. Pretty sure. I don't think so. It's a good one. Uh, Don't, Don't quote me. Don't look it up. Either. Because <laughs> it might be wrong. But anyways. So. So, yeah. what do you, How do you feel about demonic possession? I don't really believe it, to be honest with you. <laughs> really? No. Do you? Yeah. Hmm. How? Because it's got to exist. Why? <laughs> That's <laughs> the most general statement. It's got to exist. Because she found it in a study of 488 societies. That it happens. Hmm. And we're going to talk about some today, which kind of altered my, like, uh... To the the believing or not believing? Not believing. Yeah, exactly. I think, well, okay. That's me too. So we're going to get into it, but I feel like some people used it, especially way back in the day, Mm -hmm. to get rid of people that they didn't like. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I don't... 
I feel like it's just like the, you can act insane. Yeah. And then you'd be like, I was possessed. Yeah. That's like a, you, it's a way to get off of like, you just plead insanity basically. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So we have 12 <clears throat> cases to talk about today. We do. And um, just for the record, there's a lot of hard words in this too. A lot of ancient, not ancient, but like 1600s. 17th century yeah. names that are ta- hard. <laughs> yeah. So I have the first one, which is the Axon Province Possessions. Did you want to talk about the Catholicism oh, stuff? Oh, yeah, I guess. I just wanted to talk more. So you go ahead and talk. <laughs> um, so this says that Catholic exorcists differentiate between ordinary uh, satanic demonic activity or influence of mundane everyday temptations and extraordinary satanic demonic activity, which can take six different forms ranging from complete control by Satan or some demons to voluntary submission. Mm. So how does that work? You're just like, I want to be possessed. M- maybe. Yeah. I mean, if you were a Satanist, you'd probably be asking for it. But full control by Satan. Mm. That sounds like a bad day. I wouldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So possession um, is where Satan or some demon takes full possession of a person's body without their consent, but it's usually because the person did something that caused it to happen. Obsession, which includes sudden attacks of irrationally obsessive thoughts, usually culminating in suicidal, um, suicidal thoughts, and typically influences dreams. Yeah. Oppression. Which there is no loss of consciousness or involuntary action, such as in the biblical book of Job, in which Job was tormented by a series of misfortunes in business, family, and health. So that's like if your house is haunted, you're oppressed. Yeah, you can't really escape it. Right. That just kind of follows you around. Um, external physical pain caused by Satan or some demons. Infestation, which affects houses, things, or animals, like you said. Could you imagine an animal being possessed? That'd be a bummer. Maybe that's like Cujo. It wasn't really rabies. Yeah. It was the devil. Mm. Uh, subjection, in which a person voluntary, uh, voluntarily submits to Satan or some demons. So that's... Huh. You gotta be in a low spot to do that. Yeah. Haven't uh, hit there yet. No, maybe Coming one day. soon. And some of these... Um, have side effects of speaking in tongues, uh, superhuman strength, uh, revelation of knowledge that the victim shouldn't know, blasphemous rage, obscene hand gestures, using profanity, and an aversion to holy symbols. I flip you off all the time. Yeah. Is that obscenities? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and then there's a little section on the medicine and psychology of possessions. Says those who profess a belief in a demonic possession, also referred to as a possessive trance disorder, have sometimes uh, been described to possession the symptoms associated with physical or mental illness, such as hysteria, Tourette syndrome, epilepsy, schizophrenia, conversion disorder, or dissociative identity disorder. Um, the dissociative identity disorder, or DSM 5, states that. Possession form identities in the dissociative identity disorder typically manifest as behaviors that appear as if a spirit or supernatural being outside of the person has taken control, um, such that the individual begins speaking or acting in a distinctively distant manner. 
It is not uncommon to describe the experience of sleep paralysis as a demonic possession. Hmm. That's interesting. Although it is not a physical or mental illness, the symptoms vary across cultures. Demonic possession is not a valid psychiatric or medical diagnosis recognized by either the DSM-5 or ICD-10. The DSM-5 indicates that the person personality states of dissociative uh, identity disorder may be interpreted as, as possessions in some cultures. Uh, and instances of spirit possession are often related to traumatic experiences, suggesting that possession experiences may be caused by mental distress. Some have expressed concern that the belief in demonic possession can limit access to health care for the mentally ill, and studies have found that alleged demonic possessions can be related to trauma. Hmm. That's interesting. I never heard that before. Yeah. Uh, have you ever had sleep paralysis? No. Oh, have you? Yes, twice. No. Yeah. Tell me. It was horrible. One time I was at, I was, was when I was like 16, I was at mom's and I fell asleep watching TV. And you know what it is, right? You're like, yeah. You're like awake. You're awake, but you can't move. Yeah. It's like your brain, whenever you dream, your brain shuts down your body so you don't like run in your dreams. So uh-huh. you're not like running in your bed. So your body does that, but your brain is still awake. So, like, yeah. you can still see, but you can't move anything. Yeah. And I was laying in bed, and I was, like, watching TV, and I heard, like, heard, like, somebody broke into the front door. And I could just, like, hear him walking up the stairs, like, super loud. And then the door opened. And it was just, like, a black, like, figure. And as soon as it, like, got into my room, I, like, shot up in bed. But you, like, uh-huh. yeah, you can't, like, move. You're fully aware of what's happening. The only thing you can do is, like, wiggle your toe. It's, like, like the only thing you can do. And once huh. you can, like, wiggle your toe, you can kind of start moving your whole leg, and then it kind of yeah. releases. But, man. That's terrifying. Yeah, it happened here one time, too. Did it? Mm-hmm. Was it the same thing? No, it was like, that one was just, I was, I had turned the TV off already, and I was just laying there staring at the ceiling, and then I couldn't move. That one wasn't as bad, because nothing really happened. Yeah. But there's, like, people who, like, describe, like, things in the corner. Uh-huh. They're just, like, staring at them. Yeah, and they can't do anything about it. Yeah. Ooh, no. Fuck that. Not for me. No. But I could see how that could be. You could think that was a demon because it's like. Yeah, because you're awake yeah. and you're coherent. It's weird that you don't have. Everyone I've ever read about is like a bad experience. Yeah. Nobody's ever said they had like a good experience. Right. With that, which is kind of strange. Well, I wonder if it has to do like your frozen in fear type thing, you know? Yeah, but it's like, it's not really anything bad associated to it. You're just asleep. Yeah. So it's like every time you fall asleep, you don't have a bad dream. Yeah. So it's kind of you remember. No, I never remember my dreams. I do sometimes. Whenever I'm stressed out, I tend to remember them more. Or if I wake up in the middle of it. Hmm. But then they quick, like if I woke up and I remember what I dreamed about, mm-hmm. and then I went back to sleep, I wouldn't be able to remember. I remember that I remember, but I don't remember what it was, what it was. about. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. I so. hardly ever remember my dreams. It's bad. Dreams are crazy. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to get into the 12 cases that we have here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They start from, they're in chronological order. So a lot of these in the beginning are like 17th century type, like where this all started from. So my first one is the Axon province possession. So um, the first 20 to 25 years of the 17th century, it was actually the peak of accusations in France's witchcraft hunt. Similar to, like, what we had here with Salem. There was people accusing people of 
using witchcraft and doing all that stuff. So during this time frame, the number of cases involving demonic possession in priests and nuns outnumber that of any other period. So it's kind of like anything else. Once it starts someplace, it kind of just spreads like wildfire among the other ones. So, all right. The Axon province possessions were a series of alleged cases of demonic possession occurring among the Ursuline nuns of Axon province, which is in south of France. So this happened in 1610 to 1611. Madeline de Demolix was a 17-year-old. Nailed it. De that's what it says. It's D. I, I believe you. Demod- it's just Delix. funny the way you said it. We're just going to call her Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> she was a 17 year old Ursuline nun with a history of emotional instability. And she was actually returned back to her parents several times be, uh, to recover from bouts of depression that she had. Hmm. So, Father Louis Gafrida was a friend of Madeline's family. And it was actually believed that the two of them became lovers. Mm. Ew. Yeah. But Gafrida, of course, like you do, denied it. Yeah. And so the rumor spread between Madeline and Father Gafrida um, and was heard by Sister Kathleen de Gommer, who was the head of Ursuline, Co- uh, the head, oh, geez, of the Ursuline Covenant Convent. Covenant Convent? Convent. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> At Marcellus. She told Madeline's mother of the rumor between her and the father. And so her mother actually spoke to Father Gafrida and said that anything that he was doing with her daughter needed to stop immediately. Uh, uh, uh. That's right. Z snap. Uh, uh, uh. Mm. Head bobbing. Immediately. Don't be doing nothing to my child. Nuh-uh. Not today. <laughs> so Madeline was admitted to the Ursuline convent at Marcellus under Mother de Gommer. And she confessed of her relations with Father Gafrida. <gasps> no. In order to prevent further damage and to halt any association with Gafrida, Madeline was transferred to another convent far away at Aix. I don't. Aix. Aixen? Aix. Huh? Aix and Pains. Aix and Pains. <laughs> Uh, so, two years later, at the age of 19, Madeline started showing symptoms of demonic possession. And those were her body started contorting, she'd had fix, fits of rage, and she actually destroyed a crucifix Uh-oh. in her hands. Like, pchow, dust. Pchow. <laughs> Lightning McQueen. <laughs> at this time, the common practice for these symptoms was an exorcism to banish the demons. Exercise the demons. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing the way you said that. (laughs) Exercise the demons. What is that from? I don't know, but it's good. That is good. So their first (laughs) attempts (laughs) of any exorcism didn't work, but they kept on trying. And um, during these exorcisms, it brought out damning confessions about Father Gafrida. And they claimed, those demon claimed that he was a devil worshiper that had sex with Madeline since she was 17 years old. Ew. Ew. Three more. Yeah. Ew. Ew. Three more nuns were found to be possessed by demons. And by the end of the year, there was a total of eight that claimed to be possessed. Because like I said, once you start, it's like wildfire. 
can't put Pandora back in the box. Nope. There's a fly in the ointment. <laughs> the lion will speak. <laughs> so Sister Louise Capu. Capu. Pew pew. Capu pew. <laughs> she was considered to be one of the most troubled of the eight. And her body would contort and she would talk incoherently. And it was supposedly worse than Madeline's. Mm. So the the situation at the Ursuline convent was getting out of control, obviously. Sounds like it. So Father Romillo asked for an aide, excuse me, a French Grand Inquisitor, oh. Sebastian Michaelis. <laughs> <laughs> There's that freaking super American accent, Sebastian Michaelis. <laughs> okay. So, so Father Demputz, an exorcist. <laughs> Was also called in to attempt to remove the demons from the possessed nuns. Damn. Didn't work. Oh, shit. In the winter of 1610, they made further attempts to exorcise the demons (laughs) at St. Baum, which is actually the holy cave where Mary Magdalene once lived. Hmm. Who's Mary Magdalene? You know who it is. I'm going to tell you because you know you don't know. I don't know nothing. She was a disciple of Jesus Mm. who cleansed her of seven demons. Damn. She was one of the witnesses of the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus and was the first person to see him after the resurrection. Did she think he was a demon? Because that's not normal. No. She had seven already and he removed them like you do. When you're Jesus. Oh, yeah. So, anyways. So, um, the possessed women appeared to be trying to outdo each other. Like, oh, she's saying bad words, so I'm going (laughs) to really step it up and say some really gross stuff. Yeah. Anyways, so they were speaking in deep voices and screaming obscenities. Gafrida was claimed to have seduced Madeline, Mm. which caused her to become possessed. Sister Louise Capu, member, Capu-pew. the one who was the most possessed, was actually believed to have been jealous of Madeline, and she was infatuated with Gafrida. Hmm. The nuns were interrogated, and Madeline supported Gafrida and did not wish to see anything happen to him. Ga- but Capu tested that she, I want you to say bless you. Capu. <laughs> Tested that she was possessed by a devil named Varine. She was caught in constant state, or I'm sorry, she was caught in inconsistent statements that she blamed on her possession, saying the devil is the father of lies. That's a good one. It sounds like it. Yeah. That's why she couldn't tell her story straight, because the demon was getting her messed up and telling lies. That's what I mean. This whole, everything, it's just like, yeah, it's a scapegoat. Yep. Oh, it's the devil. It's the devil. He made me do it. So April 30th, 1611, Father Gafrida was convicted of causing the possession by a pact with the devil. He was escorted by archers while being dragged through the streets of Aix for five hours Mm. before arriving to the place of his execution. Damn. Have you seen, have you watched, uh, if you watch Game of Thrones, no. Well, they make this this lady walk through the streets, and there's a bell, and they're ringing it, and it just says "shame, shame, shame." <laughs> so that's what I envision in my mind, anyways. But they drug him. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Uh, the priest was granted the mercy of strangulation before his body was burned to ashes. Wow. 
I don't know. I, I feel like I'd take that strangulation. Oh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Being burned alive just sounds not fun. No. Mm-mm. So immediately following Gafrida's execution, Madeline mysteriously was apparently free of all possessions. How convenient. Kipu was possessed until she died. Kipu accused a blind girl, actually, of witchcraft, and that girl was executed in July 1611. So you could just say, hey, you're possessed and you... Do witchcraft. That's the whole thing. Like even with like the Salem witch trials, it's like yeah. it's interesting on like on the surface, but then mm-hmm. once you get like read into it, it's yeah, like, it's a it's bunch just, of yeah, it's bullshit. Yeah, I'd like to do an episode on Salem witch I don't trials. I Think it would be that interesting. I'm interested. Yeah, but I mean, it's just like hey, everybody listening, if you're interested, now. would you like to hear about the Salem witch trials? Because I would. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. moving on. <clears throat> so, uh, so she, yeah, she. Accused a blind girl of witchcraft, and she was executed. Capu was banished from the uh, the convent, but Madeline remained under what? I almost made a bad joke. Okay, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but <laughs> but Madeline remained under the watch of the Inquisition, and she was actually charged with witchcraft in 1642, and then again in 1952 or 16 damn she's 100 she might be one she might be possessed 1652 excuse me yeah that would have been a miracle during her second i swear i'm not the devil (laughs) i'm just 312 years old (laughs) so during her second trial madeline was found again to have the devil's mark which i have a devil's mark huh you know what that is no a mole on my neck i got it i got one too so you're the a little devil. tiny one. Mine's bigger than yours. Yeah. More aggressive. Super demon. <laughs> yeah. And she was sentenced to imprisonment. When she got old, she was released to the custody of a relative and died in 1670 at the age of 77. Damn, in 1600? 1670. Yeah, that's still like, that's oh, that's old Yeah. for so, then. Yeah, 77, Maybe yeah. Maybe she was. Mm, hmm. Some I witchcraft going on. Yep. Huh. So that is my story of Aixen Province Positions. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So my next one, there's a, like a ton of information, but for the sake of the episode, I kind of cut it down a little bit. But there are the Loudon Possessions. Um, it's one of the most celebrated cases of bewitchment and or possession, which occurred in the French town of Loudon during the mid-1630s. The most spectacular of a series of such cases involved a whole coven of Ursuline nuns allegedly possessed as a result of the devilish practices of their handsome spiritual director, Father Urban. Urban uh, Grandier. Um, He had arrived in Loudoun in 1617 as a parish priest and ended ended his life at the stake as a result of the nuns' accusations. Loudoun was notable for several, several reasons. It was a town full of churches and religious houses. It stood at the edge of the, ooh, that's a hard word, <laughs> Huguenot heartland around the uh, La Rochelle. It was divided between Protestants and Catholics, and in 1616, it was the scene of a conference between two churches with a view uh, to finding grounds for reconciliation. It was the home of the great grammarian, uh, Scavol de Saint Marthe. Mm, perfect. Nice. Nailed it. Whose fame was uh, such that Charles I of England came to visit him and whose literary circle 
was noted for its brilliance. After the death of St. Martha in 1622, Urban Grandier uh, gave the funeral oration and became, with the public uh, prosecutor and historian Louis Trincent, the joint center of the town's intellectual set. The most striking event in the Loudoun uh, possessions... Oh, wait. Sorry. The most striking event in Loudoun before the demonic crisis, however, was a devastating outbreak of plague from May to September 1632, which killed 3,700 of the town's 14,000 people. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, an evil power had struck the town. As the plug- plague faded away, a newly founded covenant of Ursuline nuns, among, among them several well-connected aristocrats, uh, began to be visited by a demonic phenomena, in quotes, um, through its walls had not been breached by the plague. So, the arrival of the devil. In late September 1632, the nuns began to see strange phenomenon around the nunnery. Before uh, many days passed, these solidified into a spectral shape of urban grandier, stalking the corridors of the nunnery at night. Gradually, more and more, the nuns began to go into convulsions and speak with strange voices. So there was like a, a shadow? They were basically saying that there's something walking around that looks like the urban grandier guy. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a list of the demons that were said to be possessing the nuns. Which, Tell me. Oh, this is going to be a rough patch. <laughs> uh, Asmodeus? Yep. Zabulon? Isaacaron, Azeroth, Gressel, Amand, Leviatome, Behome, Behere, <laughs> uh, Isis, Celis, Achaeus, Sedan, <laughs> Alex, uh, Napathalum, Cham, Ural, and Achas. Achasha. Like, all those fucking crazy names. Shakaka. Fucking Alex, what's up, dude? What's up? Might <laughs> be so fucking possessed, dog. Okay. Uh, fortunately, powerful and experienced exorcists were available uh, to command and control the demons. They, were, they used incense and sacraments, the crucifix and the Bible, um, incantations and prayer to wrestle the powers of darkness. The efficacy of their labors uh, demonstrated the truth of Catholic religion and the inherent force of Catholic rights against the claims of the Protestants. Over and over again, the afflicted women went into uh, contortions and spoke obscenities in strange voices, usually in church, often in public and frequently in the presence of visiting dignitaries such as the local bishop of or and Prince Louis de Bourbon, who went to religious ecstasies at the site. On occasion, the exorcists uh, managed to force the demons to relinquish control of the possessed women, but their successes remain limited. Have uh, you ever seen, like, the videos of their bodies contorting? Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, so we don't believe that it's demonic possession, but it's got to, I mean, to, it, because sometimes it breaks their bones. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how a person could actually, like, not be in some sort of state of something. Yeah, unless their their brain is kind of just like they're blacked out kind of thing. Like there's something wrong with their brain. I believe they could have something wrong with them, just not demonic. Hmm. Just a thing where you want to break your bones. They have, they have people in like 
mental hospitals that have to be strapped down to beds. Yeah, I guess. But that's usually for, like, hurting themselves or somebody else. Well, yeah, it's because they won't stop convulsing, really. I mean, they won't just sit still. Yeah. Hmm. So, I don't, I don't That's Yeah, there are some that are kind of weird to see. But uh, the destruction of Urban Grandier. Perhaps the most damning evidence against Grandier was pronounced in May 1634 by the demon Leviathan, speaking through the mouth of Jean de Angus under the command of the exorcist. By the foot of the bishops was found a document which was indeed the signed pact of the exorcist. Was indeed the signed pact which the exorcist had demanded? During an earlier exorcism, Asmodeus had stated that it was spotted with Grandier's blood, and a later investigation discovered a scar on his hand. Mm. So he was up to no good. No good. After they found the scar on his hand, he was burned at the stake. Dang. Dang. They don't fuck around. No. Um, the death of Grandier became the stuff of legend, being held up as an example of bravery by uh, skeptics, but applauded uh, by the more loyal supporters of Richelieu, whose vengefulness was widely blamed for Grandier's death. During the Enlightenment, this case was held against the French uh, Catholic Church, which continued to conduct exorcisms as a demonstration of Catholic oppression and bigotry. So that's basically it for that one. Yeah, it's kind of similar to the Axon province stuff, too. Yeah, a lot of nuns going on. Yeah, so many. Which is funny because, like, only the cases from back then are, like, all people that are already involved in religion. Yeah. You never hear about people, like, like, random people that are possessed. Maybe because they knew more about it. That's what I mean. Yeah. So it's like, these people are dealing, like, reading about the devil, the devil. and mm-hmm. possessions and all this stuff. So yep. That's, could very well be. That's where it's kind of You might suspicious. have cracked the code. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so my next one is Dorothy Talby. 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 Or Talba. However you want me to say it. Talba. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> All right, so Dorothy Talby was a respectable member of the church in Salem, Massachusetts. She became increasingly sad and had fits of violence. So the governor, John Withrop, chalked her up as, chalked all of this up as having disagreements with her husband. And he, the governor, had revelations from Satan saying that, that Dorothy wanted to attempt to kill her, cousin, her husband, her children, and herself. Hmm. So, so Dorothy was sad, and the governor had a revelation that she wanted to kill everyone. The governor did? The governor, yes. How? Withrop. How? I don't know. He's just... <laughs> he's, that girl's too sad. Yeah, she probably is she, possessed. She, <laughs> so... That's crazy. Yeah. So, Talby did not listen. So, so the governor, back then, there was, no, there was no separation of church and state. Right. So, the governor was very high up in the church and told everybody about poor old Dorothy and her sadness... Um, so, but Talby didn't listen to the church elders who tried to warn her and they actually cast her out of the church. Hmm. She, uh, actually failed to appear before the quarterly court for assaulting her husband. I don't know exactly what she did to him, but she assaulted him in some way. Hmm. And, um, she was ordered to appear before this court in April in 1637. Um, because she didn't appear, she was ordered to be bound and chained to a post 
until her behavior changed. So can I just say, thank God, I was not born in 1637. Don't be sad. No sadness. (laughs) And I'm sure at that point, assaulting her husband would have been maybe even talking back. Yeah. I don't know. I'd be, oh, I'd been burned at the stake, I'll tell you that. I'll tell you what doesn't help sadness is being bound to a pole. That will not cure that. I would agree with you. <laughs> I don't know for sure. I've never a, been tied to a pole. I'm not a doctor, but yeah. I wouldn't think that'd be good for it. No. So um, in July 1637, she was publicly whipped for violations against her husband. Again, it could have been something as simple as just saying no. Right. Uh, she seemed to be improving for a while, but then she fell into a state of despair, which could have been from the being whipped. I don't know. And tied to a pole. Yep. yep. In November... Um, of 1638, she killed her daughter. Damn. Yeah. Her daughter was named Difficulty. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And she, <laughs> yeah. Don't, that's a bad name. Whoa. And she killed her by breaking her neck. Uh, how old was she? I don't, I didn't see how old she was. Any um, age, though, Yeah, any age, that's oof. terrible. Number one, that her name's Difficulty. And number two, that her mother killed her by breaking her neck. Uh, But she freely confessed to doing this. Um, Talby was charged with murder. And but at the trial, she was very uncooperative and she refused to speak to the governor until he threatened to pile stones on her chest. At which point then she's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm guilty. You got me. Damn. She refused to repent at her trial or at her execution. And she remained very uncooperative throughout the whole process. She fought at her execution and removed the cloth covering from her head and put it under the noose to lessen the pain. Hmm. So I don't, I guess her arms weren't tied. I feel like your first instinct if somebody was to tie a rope around your neck would be to grab the the rope. Yeah, but those were meant to, they weren't meant to hang you, they are meant to break your neck. Right, so. yeah. So they must not have done it because I know that you have to tie it at an exact point so that it'll actually snap. Mm-hmm. But they didn't do it that it's way. The same, yeah. There's a lot of like science because it has to be that the rope has to be a certain length and all that crap yeah. too. So, so your body will yeah. fall. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so so it didn't break on her fall, mm-hmm. and she was swinging from the noose, and she actually attempted to grab a ladder. Damn. To save herself. And that is the story of Dorothy. So she didn't get the ladder. She's dead. Well. So. Damn. Not, I mean. I, I could see where at that time when you didn't know anything, if somebody killed their child, you could say it was demonic because who in their right mind would kill their child? Unless it was an accident. Yeah. Some crazy accident. And then. Yeah. Yeah. So there wasn't a whole lot on good old Dorothy, um, but the governor kind of brought this upon himself. Yeah, that's, well. So that Mm. is the story of Dorothy Talby. Hmm. My next one is Elizabeth the Ranfang. Ranfang, I think is how you say it. Um, she was born on October 30th, 1592, in the town of Rearmont, Lorraine. Her parents were lesser nobles. Uh, they eventually forced her into wedlock with a much older nobleman by the name of <laughs> Francois de Bois. Ooh. 
fancy. <laughs> After briefly freeing from this unde- undesirable situation and being forced back into it, she would eventually be widowed by this man, who perhaps unsurprisingly turned out to be abusive and alcoholic, and she had had six children with him. Whoa. That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, by all accounts, Elizabeth was a virtuous woman. She lived in the... Uh, she lived in Lorraine, France still, um, which would eventually be annexed and turned into a province. At a social event in 1618, a doctor by the name of Charles Povitt uh, proposed to her. She Good refu- for her. Huh? Good for her. Get a girl. She refused. Oh. <laughs> Spoke too soon. <laughs> this Stupid. Would, this would ultimately lead to Povitt uh, seemingly using occult means to force her to fall in love with him. The concoctions didn't quite work uh, how they were supposed to, though, seeing as Elizabeth soon fell ill with a condition that was identified by medieval French experts as a demonic possession. So wait, the doctor used occult stuff to try to get her to fall in love with him? Yeah. Hmm. And he did the wrong thing. Stupid, stupid. She a demon, though. Povet had been using herbal filters uh, to work as dark magic the ingredients of which apparently severely damaged the health of his target. Desperate to win Elizabeth's heart uh, through any means necessary, he switched to using different mixtures of herbs, but these simply worsened her condition and apparently had serious psychological effects on her, seeing his symptoms aligning with the common perception of demonic possession started to manifest in Elizabeth. Povet was eventually convicted of sorcery and burned at the stake. If I had a dollar for every guy who tried to use the occult to make me <laughs> fall in love with them... <laughs> Normal, I'd have no dollars. Normal Friday but. night at the bar. <laughs> What's that guy doing? I was mixing herbs. <laughs> Trying to get me to fall in love with him again. <laughs> again. This is fucking wild. Um, let's see. Having been placed in the situation by a doctor, Elizabeth perhaps reluctantly consulting the help of other physicians, but they were stumped by her symptoms and could do nothing to cure them. As of the last resort, they recommended that she try an exorcism. The first of many exorcisms that would allow, or that would follow this decision, took place on September second of sixteen nineteen in Vermont. The person tasked with performing the exorcism was a French professor and a monk. His name was Claude Pithois. Oh, weird name. Um, who was skeptical of the claims of the demonic possession made by his peers? Instead, he suggested that the drugs used by Povet must have caused the convulsions, which were being mistakenly identified as a possession. Absolutely sure of his conclusion, Pith always decide, or declared that he should become possessed himself. And if the case turned out to be genuine, but as perhaps something of a demonstration of the eagerness to believe in the supernatural of the public at the time, Pith always was quickly dismissed and replaced by a less skeptical doctor. Elizabeth was sent to Nancy, which was the capital city of Lorraine. Um, so that she could be interviewed and examined by a respected physician, Remy Pichard, and a group of his cohorts. Pichard documented the case well. These men all agreed that her symptoms were most likely caused by a demonic possession. A small crowd of exorcists dis- descended upon Elizabeth at this point, consisting of various church officials, physicians, monks, theologians, and even representatives of the royal court. These men viewed the demonic... Um, or the possession, sorry, at a local Jesuit uh, chapel on the 31st of May, 1621. During the skeptical, the woman's neck was observed to swell to the point that it seemed that her head was directly affixed to her body. Uh, 
Ooh. And all present, including Prashard, concluded that the demon had somehow stretched the host's body so that it was at least one and a half foot taller. Huh. Her face darkened and her eyes rolled back in her head, and she began to foam at the mouth. She fell to the ground uh, and writhed around for a moment uh, before being hoisted up by an invisible force, almost appearing as if there was an, uh, a string tied to her waist. With her waist held up in the air and her limbs dangling down to the floor beneath her, she, the, this posture then inverted so that her waist was the only thing touching the ground. Ooh. Yeah. Terrifyingly, she went. Uh, she was then made to climb up a nearby column and briefly dangle from the great height by her left leg before falling a distance of seven feet down to the floor. Dang. Uh, landing, she landed without injury. Her clothes stayed what? fixed to her body the entire time. However, seeing as she had apparently vowed never to denude herself, um, after the trauma she had endured at the hands of an abusive husband. Oh. Denude herself. Yeah, I guess it, take her clothes off. So. Denude. I'm going to go take a shower and denude myself. <laughs> Uh, this was the only of the intriguing occasions which the demon seems to respect the wishes of his host. Huh. I guess. I mean, you like, okay about with to, getting dropped seven yeah. feet and dangling from things. Hmm. They interrogated the demon in numerous languages, including Hebrew, Greek, Italian, and Latin. Uh, the demon responded easily to all of these. Sometimes the demon's answers even consisted of multiple languages, with a sentence being partially in French and partially in Latin. For example, the team made an attempt to trip up the demon by using incorrect Greek, um, but the demon quickly pointed out their gra- grammatical errors. Oh, so it's one of those. It's a snooty demon. Right. Uh, Grammar exorc- Nazi. <laughs> the exorcist gave the demon instructions in various languages which were uh, understood and carried out by the entity. It made signs of the cross, carried holy water, and even kissed the foot of the bishop. Uh, the demon demonstrated the ability to give correct answers of questions about Catholic theology, but then alarmingly revealed the secret sins of those present. It also pointed out the Calvinist and Puritan witnesses, apparently without any poor indication of this aspect of their Christian faith. Sometimes the exorcist didn't even need to speak out loud. The demon instead simply understood movements of their lips and hand gestures. Hmm. It would perform bizarre body movements and postures. Give it the middle finger. (laughs) It was 1625 when the position finally stopped and disappeared after a lengthy period of exorcisms. The exorcists all signed statements attesting to the validity of possession, and Elizabeth eventually founded an order of nuns called the Order of Refuge, and it was meant to help women recovering from a life of prostitution. Um, It was approved by Pope Urban VIII in 1634 before Elizabeth died on January the 14th, 1649, while living in Nancy. So this is interesting because in the beginning, it was more, I mean, I know that the doctor gave her the herbal the herb. stuff, Yeah. but then she was also seen by other doctors that discounted it as demonic possession as well. This is the first time we've heard so far the doctors have been involved, mm-hmm. but they still came to the same conclusion. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's huh. just weird that, I don't know, you could give somebody the demon. Because in the the overview thing we read at the beginning, it said they had to, like, be willingly yeah. accepting. Yeah. So I don't know, I don't know you could, like, curse. It's pretty much like a curse. Right. Witchcraft. Yeah. There it goes hand in hand here, I feel. 
Yeah, but he did get burned. Yeah, <laughs> true. That's crazy. That's another thing. You just be like, this guy yeah, it's did witchcraft for, on me. And yeah, then it's they're for like, people right. that you don't like to get rid of them. Crazy. Hmm. That's it for that one. Okay. The next case I have is the Louviers. Oh. Possessions. The possession at Louviers, which is in Normandy, France, is similar to the one I talked about before, the Axe and Province possessions. Um, it occurred at Louviers Convent in 1647. As with both the Axe case and its later counterpart in Luden, which you talked about, the conviction of the priests involved hinge on the confessions of supporting supposed possessed demonics. Supposed possessed. Supposed. There's another Madeline we got. There's a lot of those. Madeline Bavant was born at Rowan. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> I'm listening, man. What do you want? Okay. Don't look at me in the eyes. Being real studious and shit. You are. Like a statue. Mm. Studious. Okay, so Madeline Bavant was born at Rowan in 1607. She was an orphan, and at the age of 12, she was given to a line worker where she was taught to apprentice, and this line worker got a lot of work from the church. Um, according to historian Jules Michelet, nice. the line worker probably drugged the apprentices and led them to believe that he was taking them to a Sabbath. He had, um, he had his way with three of them, and Madeline at 14 was the fourth. Ew, I don't like that term. Had his way with. Had his way. Don't like that. He did it. Don't. Don't do it. Did it. Don't. <laughs> uh, at the age of 16, she entered a convent that had been established in the woods outside Louvier. Michelet said that the elderly supervisor, Father David, preaching the nudity Adam practiced in his innocence. They got denuded. Yeah. So his ding dong was, his hang down <laughs> was free. He was denude, as you like to say. <laughs> I've never heard that term. What? His hang down. <laughs> you nasty. You. Uh, but that Madeline refused to submit to this strange way of living. So she didn't like to be. She don't like the hang down. She don't like the hang down. The high and tight. <laughs> um, and her superiors were angry at her refusal. She lived apart from the rest of the community, and upon Father David's death, he was succeeded by Marthrin Picard, Captain Picard, <laughs> who made her in charge and pursued her with amorous intentions. Hmm. You know what that means? Nope. Sexual. <laughs> <laughs> and um, magic potions, and then made her pregnant. Imagine that. With her probably magic potions. With his hang down. His hang down. <laughs> That was free in the nude. Sister Madeline Bavant was 18 years old in 1625. The initial possession victim, she claimed to have been bewitched by the now Picard, who was dead. Hmm. The nunnery's former director and father, Thomas Buell, the vicar of Louviers, uh, her confession to the authorities claimed that the two men had abducted her and, ha and taken her to a witch's Sabbath. There, she was married to the devil whom she called Dagon. 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 <laughs> Married to the devil. <laughs> he committed sexual acts with him on the altar and that two men were allegedly crucified and disemboweled 
as those acts took place. Ew. Gross. Safe. Madeline's confession prompted the investigation, which found that other nuns reportedly having uh, been brought to secret Sabbaths by Picard and Buell were sex uh, were sex with demons, particularly Dagon, took place. So there was lots of ladies having Dagon sex. I like it. I like this one. <laughs> These confessions were accompanied by what investigators believed were classic signs of demonic possession, such as contortions, like we talked about. Uh, natural body movements, speaking in tongues, obscene insults, and blasphemies. Hmm. Beyond mere symptoms of possession, the body of Sister Barbara of St. Michael, what? <laughs> I don't know. Was said to this be possessed by a demon named Anstiff. 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 Gross. <laughs> <laughs> Hang down is and stiff. And stiff. Dag on it. <laughs> as in the Luden possessions a decade prior, the exorcism at Louvier's were a public spectacle. Nearly every person present at the exorcism was questioned by the inquisitors, and the entire town of Louvier's began exhibiting symptoms of hysteria, just like we talked about before. Huh. One of them gets it, and now they're all possessed. Funny how that works. It is. Um, so... The cries of nuns undergoing exorcism rose with the screams of Father Buell, so the whole town heard it, which is what caused some of the hysteria. Um, In his account that Picard published in 1652, nuns were said to confess further evidence against Picard and Buell, in addition to tempting them with sexual acts. Satan had also tried leading the nuns down the road of heresy. Why are you looking at me like that? I don't know if that's how you say it. I was I like looking for your approving. approving. <laughs> that's it. You did good, kid. Thanks. Uh, appearing to the nuns as a beautiful angel, the devil engaged them in theological conversations so clever that they began to doubt their own teachings. Hmm. Um, when told that this was not the same information they'd been taught, Satan replied that he was the messenger of heaven who was sent to reveal fatal errors in what was otherwise accepted dogma. So... He was there to say that they were wrong about everything. Hmm. Signs of possessions continued throughout the exorcism. One witness wrote that a nun ran with movements so abrupt that it was difficult to stop her. One of the um, clerics present, having caught her by the arm, was surprised to find that it did not prevent her from moving. So he got her arm, but then the rest of her body was just flailing around. Huh. As hysteria rose, it seemed inevitable that a trial would occur and Father Buell's fate would be sealed. During the exorcisms, though, Parliament at Ruin passed sentence. Sister Madeline Bavant would be imprisoned for life in the church dungeon. Father Buell would be burned alive. And the corpse of Picard would be exhumed and burned. Damn. That's pretty... Exhumed. Yeah. He gonna be... That's a lot of work. Buried and then burnt. Damn. After the nuns at Louvier were afflicted, authorities undertook the task of cataloging the symptoms of demonic possession. Um, so they came up with 15 indications of a true possession. Uh, one is to think that you're possessed, to lead a wicked life, to live outside the rules of society, to be persistently ill, um, and falling into a heavy sleep and vomiting unusual objects like maggots. Ew. Yep, that would be that would cause be, for concern. Yeah. To utter obscenities and blasphemies. Well, shit. Hmm. 
or possessed, uh, to be troubled with spirits, to show a frightening and horrible countenance, to be tired of living, yeah, to be uncontrolled and violent, to make sounds and movements like an animal, to deny knowledge of of fits after the paroxysm had ended, I don't know what that is, Uh, to show fear of sacred relics and sacraments, to curse violently at any prayer, and to exhibit acts of lewd exposure or abnormal strength. Hmm. (laughs) So um, it's widely believed today that the Louvier's possession, similar in many ways to those of the province, was a part of a political and religious show in France. According to Stuart Clark, possession and exorcism were theoretical, um, and it was a conflict to show the conflict between the church and Satan, uh, a conflict that contemporaries believe were reaching its climax in the early modern era. Um, so most demonic possessions in France of this period were of young women and appeared most often in the, the convents. Physicians and psychologists today attribute much of the activities to sexual hysteria because they weren't allowed to have sex. Huh. Because they were nuns. Sexual hysteria. Is that an actual term? Is that a real thing? Yeah. Huh. I guess. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Um, extreme Caesar, seizures. <laughs> seizures. To me, little Caesar's pizzas. <laughs> Explained in the 17th century are today believed to point to epilepsy and similar similar diseases, not demonic possession, like they like to say. Hmm. So, um, fun fact, heavy metal band King's Diamond, who nobody's heard of, nope. um, has a album called The Eye, and it tells the story that took place during the Louvier's possession. So wow. you can give that a listen. That's interesting. I would like to hear it just to see how that unravels. I'm willing to bet it's not good. I've never, yeah. I mean, probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Huh. Interesting. So that's all for that one. All right. My next one is Elizabeth Knapp. Um, She was born the 21st of February, 1655 in Waterton, Massachusetts. She was the daughter of James and Elizabeth uh, Knapp. Elizabeth married Samuel Scripture. What a name. That sounds fake as hell. That does. Samuel Scripture on September 11, 1674 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and moved to Groton, Massachusetts, where her 10 children were born. She died between 1720 and 1728, probably in Groton. Um, Her husband, Samuel Scripture, served King Philip's War under Captain Joseph Sill, um, on the 24th of August, 1676. Uh, these are the records of Elizabeth's life, and there's not much information to be added about how she lived or what she did, except for the extraordinary incident which occurred uh, when she was 16 years old in 1671. This incident has been recorded in many books and even documented by church elders and a certain Cotton Mather in particular. It was during the time of the Massachusetts witch hunts, and Elizabeth was possessed by the devil on an on and off for a period of three months. Elizabeth had gone to work as a servant in the home of the minister, Samuel Willard, in Groton. Um, This was a household which was much more prosperous than her own, and she probably for the first time uh, was exposed to a life that was much nicer than the one she had become accustomed to. The puritanical lifestyle was a very restricting one, especially for a 16-year-old girl. Sometime after Elizabeth's strange behavior began, Samuel Willard wrote, 
documenting the case, and she sent his report to the church elders, and also to Colton or Cotton Mather. I'm sorry. According to his account, in some of Elizabeth's early fits, she frequently cried out, "Money, money," and sometimes sin and misery. She was violent in bodily motions and roarings and screamings, representing a dark resemblance of hellish torments. She tried to blame her condition on an older woman in town, or older woman in town, but because Willard did not think she was think this woman was a witch, he paid no attention to Elizabeth's accusations. When Willard pressured Elizabeth to tell the truth, um, tell the truth and real occasion of her fits, she said that the devil had appeared to her many times over the previous three years and offered to make her a witch. He offered her money, silks, fine clothes, ease from labor, um, and to show her to the whole world. She admitted that the devil became, or came because of her discontent that he had uh, came much more frequently from when she once started as a servant at the Willard household. As weeks went by, Elizabeth's fits became worse, and she was more confused. She alternated between violent, convulsive state, uh, trance-like states, uh, stupors, between which uh, she was denying that she had been given into the devil's temptations to become a witch, admitting that she had. Um, she had said, it is too late for me, I've done it already, I am his sure enough. Other times she condemned herself as a sinner and admitted that she was tempted to sign the devil's book, but said absolutely that she hadn't done it. Throughout the period of time that she was possessed, there were several times when Elizabeth could not speak at all, when her breath or speech were stopped by her invisible devil. At one point, Willard noted that her tongue um, was for many hours together drawn into a semicircle up to the roof of her mouth, and she could not be dislodged, despite the efforts for some people to do so. What does that mean? They grab her tongue and try to take it off the roof of her mouth? I guess. That's not sanitary. How many hands can you get in there? Um, In the second month of her possession, Elizabeth made another unsuccessful attempt to hold a second woman accountable for her problems. Willard refused to believe her, and pushing her again to tell the truth, uh, he received the following explanation. She declared that the devil had sometimes appeared to her, and that the occasion of it was her discontent. Uh, that her condition displeased her, her labor was burdensome, and she was neither content to be at home nor abroad, and that she had often sometimes, often sometimes, that doesn't make sense, (laughs) Uh, she had oftentimes strong persuasions to practice in witchcraft, had often wished the devil would come to her at such and such times, and he, and had resolved that if he would, she would give herself up her soul and her body. More sexual. Sexual. But though he had oftentimes appeared to her, yet at such times he had not discovered himself. Um, Therefore, she had been preserved from such a thing. So she kind of going back and forth like, he came to me, he didn't come to me. I signed the book, I didn't sign the book. She seems like a crazy person to me. Yeah. Very fickle. Samuel Samuel Willard uh, talked to Elizabeth, telling her, that as a good Puritan, she needed to rest um, contented with the conditions that had so upset her and that he would help her. He told her that Satan was responsible for her actions. This talk seemed to cause a crisis. Her fits now became more extreme and her emotions more volatile. She tried to kill herself and began to lash out at others, striking those who tried to hold her, spitting in their faces, and then laughing. A few days, uh, 
A few days later, as Willard recounted, the devil and Elizabeth Knapp took over completely. The devil made his presence known, Willard continued, by drawing her tongue out of her mouth more frightfully in extraordinary length and greatness, and by making many amazing postures of her body, he quoted. He then began to speak vocally in her, railing at her father and another person. When Willard himself tried to intervene, Satan turned his rage on him directly and called him a great rogue, and, the, and telling Willard that his, his people was, were a company of lies. Amazed and apparently shaken, Willard fought back, challenging the devil to prove his charges and uh, called him a liar and a deceiver. The devil continued to speak in Elizabeth, but within a few days he was physically gone, apparently for good. Elizabeth continued, for the most part speechless. Her fits became less intense, although she was seen to always fall into fits uh, when any strangers go to visit her. And the more that go, the more violent her fits went, or became. Uh, Willard concluded in his report that Elizabeth's distemper were both real and diabolical and that the devil was actually present within her. To support his belief, he pointed out that the terrific strength of Elizabeth's fits and beyond, were beyond any force of dissimulation, uh, that the healthiness of her body uh, when she was not having convulsions argued against any natural explanation, and that when the voice spoke within her, her mouth and her vocal cords did not move, and her throat was swelled to the size of a fist. He also said that Elizabeth herself had never expressed any hostility towards him. On the contrary, both before and after being thus taken, she had always been observed uh, to speak respectfully concerning him. Three years after her possession by the devil on 11 September 1674 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Elizabeth married Samuel Scripture. She was 19 years old. She and Samuel went on to have 10 children, all born in Groton. Both Elizabeth and Samuel died between 1720 and 1728, probably in Groton. Their lives have been more interesting or even exciting, but nothing else happened. Uh, nothing else that happened to them has been recorded in the details that were concerning Elizabeth's possession. Hmm. What are the... I guess three years is a, a lot of time, I was going to say. That seems pretty close to... Like, this girl used to be possessed, but now we're going to get married. Right. <laughs> and she's fine. Ugh. I feel like I'd steer clear of that. <laughs> That's something to put on your, uh, on your internet profile. Tinder profile. Yes. Used to be possessed, LOL. But I'm fine now. Yeah. I'm all right. <laughs> that was then. This is the new me. Right. All right. We're going to talk about George Lukens. George Lukens. George Lukens. Here he is. Okay, George Lukens was also known as the Yaton Demonic. Hmm. He was a tailor infamous for his alleged demonic possession and the subsequent exorcism that occurred in 1788 when he was 44. The Reverend Joseph Easterbrock, the Anglican vicar of Temple Church, was called on Saturday in May 1778 by Miss Sarah Barber, um, she was a woman who was traveling in the village of Yatan Mendilp in the country, county, county, <laughs> country, excuse me, of, like, of, <laughs> of Somerset. Um, the woman told the pastor that she had come across a man by the name of George Lukens, a tailor who sang and screamed in various sounds, but it doesn't didn't resemble a man's voice. Hmm. She believed that there was nothing doctors could do for him. 
Mrs. Barber, was formerly, um, who formerly resided in Yatan, told the clergyman that Lukens had an extraordinary good character and attended services of worship where he received the church sacraments. However, for the past 18 years, he had been subject to fits, which Lukens believed resulted from a supernatural slap that knocked him down when he was acting in a Christmas pageant. <laughs> so somebody was like, you're terrible. Hey. Ciao. <laughs> Supernatural slap. Uh, Lukens was taken under the care of Dr. Smith, who was a surgeon, uh, among many other physicians who tried to help him. After his 20-week stay at St. George Hospital, the medical community there announced him incurable. Members of the community began to think that Lukens was bewitched, and he declared that he was possessed by seven demons. Seven. We hear that a lot, seven demons. I don't know what's up with that. but you think it would be, because isn't seven supposed to be like God's number, like six of the devils? Right. you think it would be six. You'd think they'd be possessed by 666 demons. That's just too many. That is way too many. Um, but that he was possessed by seven demons who could only be driven out by seven clergymen. Reverend Joseph Easterbrock uh, contacted Methodist ministers in connection with Rev. John Wesley, who agreed to pray for George. Ain't ain't he sweet? What a nice guy. Um, That guy's all fucked up. This is a statement from Reverend John Volton. Some time ago, I had a letter requesting me to take one of the seven ministers to pray over George Lukens. I cried out before God, Lord... I'm not fit for such work. I have not I have not faith to encounter a demonic. It was powerfully applied. God in this thy might. The day before we were to meet, I went to see Lukens and found such faith that I could then encounter the seven devils which he so tormented him. I did not doubt but deliverance would come. Suffice to say, when we met the Lord, heard prayer and delivered the poor man. What a guy. Hmm. Um so, an account of the exorcism was published in the Bristol Gazette, and the newspaper reported that George, during his possession, claimed that he was the devil, and he made barking noises, sung uh, weird songs, and was very violent. In light of the claims, on Friday the 13th, dun, 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 <laughs> June 1778, seven clergymen, including Reverend Joseph Easterbrock, accompanied George Luck. Lukens to the vestry at Temple Church, where they performed an exorcism on the man, which included him singing in prayer. Did he get smacked for not singing good enough? I don't know. Maybe (laughs) maybe God slapped the devils out of him. I don't know. (laughs) The deliverance concluded when the demons were allegedly cast out using the Tritarian formula. The clergyman commanded the demons to return to hell, and George Lukens then explained... Blessed Jesus, praise God, recited the Lord's Prayer, and then thanked the Methodist and the Anglican clergyman. So that was that. That's, That's pretty easy. Thanks. Um, Rev. Easterbrock, when recording the events under the patronage of Rev. John Wesley, stated that the account would be doubted in this modern era of skepticism, but pointed to the scriptures and other authentic history of ancient as well as modern times. Um, he felt that this was a valid case of demonic possession. Hmm. An article, and of course he did. Yeah, because he's the one who who got him to leave. Yep. An article in the Gentleman's Magazine and Historical Chronicle criticized the account, stating that Lukens actually suffered from epilepsy. Mm. And Saint Vitus Dance, Doctor Frar 
Frar, <laughs> a medical de- demolo- demonologist, criticized George Lukens as an imposter. I bet that happened a lot back then. I'm like sure. people had like epilepsy or like, yeah. like they said Tourette's, like anything that yep. you would have thought that was a demon in them. Nevertheless, after the exorcism, George was described as happy and calm. Following the case, several pieces of literature were printed on George Lukens popularizing his alleged case of diabolical possession and deliverance from evil. 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 Despite the original design to keep the case a secret. Hmm. So, that is the story of George Lukens. Interesting. He's fine now, people. <laughs> the next one I have is Antoine Gay. Um... He was born May 31st, 1790. He was a Frenchman who was believed by some to have been possessed by a demon named Azekaron. Mm. I think is how you say that. Sure. Um, he served the First Empire's military and became a carpenter by trade, uh, settling in Lyon. <clears throat> a very religious man, he desired to become a monk even during his youth. At the age of 46, he applied for entry into the Abbey of La Trappe de Ag- Agubel. Mm. That's a very I don't know what you just very said. French. La Trappe, La Trappe de Agubel. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> 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 was accepted as a lay brother. He subsequently left the monastery due to a nervous disorder, which some claim to be a demon possession. So here are some of the allegations. Friar Bernwad. <laughs> <laughs> Bernwad. Bernwad. Um, he was a former superior of the missionaries of La Salette, wrote a letter to, <laughs> to the then Bishop of Grenoble, in which he wrote that we have examined uh, Master Gay of Lyons three times, each session lasting from one to two hours. We consider it very probable that the man is possessed by the devil, citing various pieces of evidence, including Gay disclosing several secret things about which he had no means of knowing, and his apparent ability to understand Latin despite never having learned the language. A physician, one Dr. Pictet, expressed the view that Gay enjoyed perfect, uh, perfect health of body and mind, but was also under the influence of some occult power which uh, are naturally unable to detect by medical means and that we remain convinced that his extraordinary state can only be attributed to possession. Citing as evidence the fact that during our first interview with Mr. Gay, uh, that extraordinary thing which speaks through his mouth revealed the inmost secrets of our heart. Whatever that means. Telling them secrets about themselves. Damn. In the hearts. Uh, He told us that the story of our life, our life from the age of 12 onwards, giving details that are only known to God our confessor, and ourselves. So why do they automatically think it's evil? Is my question. Because they're like, he's obviously like religious and working for like to become closer to God. But then the people automatically think it's like the de- the devil. Because I don't think they had any more, nothing else to blame it on. But why wouldn't they think it's like God? Wouldn't that make more sense? Because it's not good, right? I mean, he nothing really happened. He just... He said then he knows things about them that he shouldn't know, and he knows Latin. Wasn't Latin? That was that's like every that's the root of every language is Latin. Well, aren't you a wealth of knowledge? Shit. <laughs> just, I don't know. I just you would think that that all these people who are like 
committed their life to religion would think it's something good, yeah, not bad. Yeah, that's the that's kind of kind of confusing. It's not like he's like speaking in tongues or like convulsing, right? They're just like he's a nervous guy and he knows things he shouldn't know and he knows Latin. So well, he must be the devil. What did they know though? If he knew negative things about the yeah, church, yeah, that's true. They that would that's what they would blame it on because even if it was well, true, that's what he says. They knows things only known to God and our confessor. So that means they confess their sins. Yeah, which are probably bad. So yeah, which I guess if he's saying all this bad shit. Yeah. So that kind of makes sense, but still, it's just kind of. Um, following Pictet's op- observations, Gay's friends tried to have him readmitted to the Abbey of La Trappe, asking the abbot to perform an exorcism. The abbot refused because he was in decease of Valence. While Gay was from the decease, decease of Lyons, Antoine Gay lived in Lyons for the next few years, at one point being arrested as a lunatic and jailed for three months after er, before being released. Um, Friar Marie-Joseph Chiron, who had founded a community that looked after the mentally disturbed, took an interest in Antoine Gay, believing him to be possessed. One day, Chiron brought Gay with him to the house of a woman nicknamed Chiquette, who was also allegedly possessed by a demon that Chiron referred to as Modeste. Um, the friar claimed that when Gay met Chiquette, their demons began to argue with each other. A remarkably violent dialogue arose between the two fallen angels. The two devils sounded like mad dogs. They spoke in a totally unknown language, very softly, and we understood nothing. I was later informed by Azekaron, who translated the dispute for me, that it was a question of precedence um, as to which was greater of the two. Um, it is needless to say that they had never met each other, but the devils in possession knew each other. Um, six times during the following days, there were there occurred the same violent uh, disputes in the same unknown language and in the presence of several witnesses. Fire Sharon claimed afterward that such facts are unexplicable except in the cases of possession. No exorcism was ever performed on Antoine Gay, and he died in June 1871 in Lyons. Hmm. So it doesn't sound very, like, this is kind of different. It's right. Like, he's not very violent or, like... That is weird, though, to, like, have two people that never met each other be arguing in an unknown language. That's yeah. fucking weird. Well, just the whole unknown language thing is pretty... But it's, it's almost scarier that they said it was, like, quietly. Because it would be... Like, whispers. Yeah. Like, you think it would, it would be weird if they were yelling at each other, but they're just, like, talking silently. That's fucking weird. Yeah, that's creepy. I yeah. don't like that. I don't, I don't like whispers. No. No, thanks. Secrets don't make friends, anyway. Okay. My next one is Johan Bloomhart. Bloomhart. That's what I'm calling him. Johan? Johan Christoph Bloomhart. Wow. Yeah. So um, he was a German. This is around. He was born in 1805 and he died in 1880. He was a German Lutheran theologian. Theologian. (laughs) (laughs) And was best known for his contribution (laughs) in thought towards a kingdom now or kingdom come theology. And his motto and centralization of Christianity around the idea that Jesus is victor. Hmm. Not victor like a person, but like Like victorious. Yeah. You know, he was the father of Christoph Blumhart. 
Christoph. Christoph. The phrase Jesus is victor, aside from its Latin origin, uh, originated from the exorcism of Godelbin Didis. Damn. Oh, yeah. Uh, that took place in Maltlingen in 1842. He wrote a book concerning the two-year-long demonic possession of a girl and published it in the year 1850 and entitled it Bloomheart's Battle. According to the writing, the pr- processor was a widow who had killed two children and buried them in a field as well as a number of demons, and the possessed was named G. It was said that the demonic manifestation ended one night with the demon shouting, Jesus is the victor. Bloomhart was considered by some a hero on the basis of the incident, but he insisted that Christ was the hero, quoted as saying, That I don't know, but this I do know, Jesus is the victor. The event led to a arrival in Bloomhart's parish. It was claimed that there were many healings, conversions of some of the church's most determined opponents, and radical transformations of life and character. Marriages were said to have been saved, and enemies reconciled amidst an outpouring of evangelistic zeal. Bermhardt's life after the exorcism was characterized by rivals and faith healings. In 1853, he purchased a thermal spa and Babel to serve as a Christian retreat where people came to seek his renowned healing abilities. He lived and worked there until his death in 1880. Hmm. So... It's really all centered around that two-year demonic possession, but they don't really go into depth on the possession itself. It was just that it was a widow who had killed two children and buried them in a field. Huh. So I don't know why, like you said, has anything to do with the demon. Maybe she was just crazy. Right. But it's like it seems to be just the easy thing to put on someone. Yep. Just like they're acting weird. People so it must be the devil. People aren't terrible people. It's just <clears throat> the devil. Yeah. I'm really shocked, honestly, at how, like, even, like, the 1600s ones, or, like, how, like, there's so much information on them. Uh-huh. Pretty amazing. Yeah. But, okay. Is that all for that one? Yep. My next one is Clara Germana Selly. Uh, sorry. Uh, she was a South African Christian woman who, in 1906, was said to be possessed by a demon. Um, she is said to be possessed when she was 16 years old at St. Michael's Mission in Natal, South Africa. The girl was an orphan of an African uh, of African origin, was baptized as an infant at the age of or sorry, at the age of 16, the girl made a pact with Satan that is said to be the cause of her demonic possession. Clara later revealed this information to her confessor, Father Horner Erasmus, uh, in an account written by a nun. Clara was said to be able to speak languages that she had no previous knowledge of. Uh, this fact was also witnessed by others who recorded uh, or recorded that she understood Polish, German, French, Norwegian, and all other languages. Well, the nun reported that Clara demonstrated clairvoyance by revealing the most intimate secrets and transgressions of people in whom she had no contact with. Moreover, Clara could not bear the presence of blessed objects and seemed to be imbued with extraordinary strength and ferocity, often hurling nuns uh, about the covenant rooms and beating them up. The nun reported that the girl's cries had a savage bestiality and astonished those around her. In regards to the girl's voice, an attending nun even wrote, No animal had ever made much sounds, neither the lions of East Africa nor the angry bulls. At times it sounded like a veritable herd of wild beasts orchestrated by Satan had formed a hellish choir. Attending none of, 
or that was said by an attending nun of St. Michael's Mission. That's pretty terrifying. Yeah. The girl, according to some, uh, was said to have levitated five feet in the air, sometimes vertically and sometimes horizontally, when sprinkled with holy water. Um, she was reported to have come out of this state of... or When she was sprinkled with holy water, she was reported to come out of this possession. So that's, yeah. That's all it took. Just a little sprinkle. Just a little <laughs> dabble, do ya? Um, that freaks me out. That gives me such a visual of the site, like just somebody levitating. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, that's pretty... I'm afraid of heights. It's just unsettling. So even like a two-foot levitation would not be good for <laughs> Uh, according to a Lutheran pastoral handbook, one possessing these symptoms and an indication that an individual is truly possessed. Rather than suffering from a mental illness, consequently, two Roman Catholic priests, Reverend Mansueti and Reverend Arismus, uh, Reverend Arismus, were appointed to perform an exorcism on Clara Germanicole. This deliverance lasted for two days. Uh, during the exorcism, Clara's first action was to knock the Holy Bible from the priest's hands and... Um, grab his rosary beads in an attempt to choke him. At the end of the exorcism, it was said that the demon was forced in the gr- forced out of the girl, and she was healed. Huh. And this one, I like. If you Google photos of her, yeah, it's like t- terrifying. Really? Yeah, she's. It looks like the Emily Rose thing, where she's like. It almost looks like The Exorcist because she's like stuff. bound to a bed, and she's like. He's all, uh, it just looks not natural. What year was that? 1906, I believe. Uh, yeah, 1906. Wow. But it's, yeah, that's pretty crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that freaks me out about the whole levitation thing and, yeah. like, just not having control of your body. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Because you're a lot stronger than you think you are. Like, people, mm-hmm. like, put limitations on themselves, but if you really just, like, didn't care about hurting other people or anything, you could, like, do really some damage. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We are skipping ahead in the timeline of history to 1949 for an exorcism of Roland Doe. Roland Doe, people. Roland Doe? Somebody. I thought that was one word. Roland Doe. Roland Doe. <laughs> We're going to call him Robbie, because that's easier. Robbie Doe. Robbie? (laughs) Why not Roland? Because that's what they called him, Robbie. Robbie? Robbie. Not Rolly. That's what I'd call him. (laughs) Rolly Doe. Rolly Doe. Okay, in 1949, several newspaper articles printed anonymous reports of an alleged possession and exorcism. The source for these reports is thought to be the family's former pastor, Luther Miles Schultz. According to one account, a total of 48 people witnessed this exorcism, nine of them Jesuits. Hmm. According to author Thomas B. Allen, Jesuit priest Father Walter H. Holleran was one of the last surviving eyewitnesses of the events and participated in the exorcism. Allen wrote that a diary kept by attending priest Father Raymond J. Bishop detailed the exorcism performed on the fake name Roland Doe. A.K.A. Robbie. Speaking in 2013, Alan emphasized the definitive proof that the boy known only as Robbie was possessed by evil spirits is unattainable. Maybe he instead suffered from mental illness or sexual abuse or fabricated the entire experience. According to Alan, Holleran also expressed his skepticism about potential paranormal events before his death. 
When asked in an interview to make a statement on whether the boy had been possessed, Halloran responded saying, no, I can't go on record. I never made an absolute statement about the things because I felt I wasn't qualified. So Roland was born, Robbie, into a German Lutheran family. During the 1940s, the family lived in Cottage City, Maryland. According to Alan, Roland was the only child and depended upon adults in his household for playmates, primarily his Aunt Harriet, who was a spiritualist. She introduced him to the Ouija board. Uh-uh-uh. Don't do that. You goofed. Yep. Because um, he expressed interest in it. So... According to Thomas B. Allen, after Aunt Harriet died, the family experienced strange noises, furniture moving on its own, and ordinary objects such as vases flying off or levitating when the boy was nearby. The family turned to their Lutheran pastor, Luther Miles Schultz, for help. Long interested in parapsychology, Schultz arranged for the boy to spend the night in his home in order to observe him. When parapsychologist J.B. Ryan learned that Schultz claimed he witnessed household objects and furniture moving by themselves, Ryan wondered if Schultz unconsciously exaggerated some of the facts. Schultz advised the boy's parents to see a Catholic priest. According to the traditional story, the boy then underwent a number of exorcisms. (laughs) Exorcisms. Edward Hughes, a Roman Catholic priest, conducted an exorcism on Roland at Georgetown University Hospital, a Jesuit institution. During the exorcism, the boy slipped out or slipped one of his hands out of the restraint, broke a bed spring from under the mattress, and oh, tried no. to use it as a weapon. Ugh. That's pretty crazy. That is wild. Um, slashing the priest's arm and resulting in the exorcism being halted, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if I get slashed with a bedspring mattress, I'm going to take a pause. Yeah, time out. <laughs> so the family traveled to St. Louis, where Roland's cousin contacted one of his professors, um, who in turn spoke to William S. Bordeaux, or Bowdern, an associate of College Church. Together, both priests visited Roland in their home, uh, where they allegedly observed a shaking bed, flying objects, and the boy speaking in guttural voices. I don't know. I have a child. Evie, she can, she can get down there in her voice. <laughs> <laughs> there was a couple times I was almost calling a uh, a priest, um, and exhibiting an aversion to anything sacred. Bodern was granted permission from the archbishop to perform another exorcism. The exorcism took place at the Alexand Brothers Hospital in South St. Louis, Missouri. Before the ritual began, another priest was called to the psychiatric wing of the hospital where he was asked to assist. William Van Rue, a third Jesuit priest, was also there to assist. Holleran stated that during the scene, words such as evil and hell, along with other various marks, appeared on his body. Hmm. Allegedly, during the litany of saints portion of the exorcism, the boy's mattress began to shake. Roland broke Holleran's nose during the process. And Holleran told a reporter that after the rite was over, the anonymous subject of the exorcism went on to lead a normal life. Wow. Isn't that crazy just how it can escalate so much and then it's just like, oh, he's fine. Yep. So in 1993, a book, Possessed, the true story of the exorcism, author Thomas B. Allen offered the consensus of today's experts that Robbie was just a deeply disturbed boy, but there wasn't anything paranormal about him. Huh. 
So, um, Arthur, I'm sorry, author Mark Osmnick questioned many of the supernatural claims associated with the story, proposing that Roland Doe was simply a spoiled, disturbed bully who threw tantrums to get attention. Um, he never heard the boy's voice change, and he thought the boy merely mimicked Latin words he heard clergymen say. So he's just mimicking. Right. Um, during his investigation, he discovered that the exorcism did not take place um, at the location that it was said to have. The boy never lived in Mount Rainier. The boy home was in Cottage City, Maryland. Much of the commonly accepted information about the story is based on hearsay. It's not documented, and it was never fact-checked. Hmm. There's no evidence that um, Father Hughes visited the boy and had him admitted to Georgetown and or requested that the boy be restrained at the hospital. There's ample evidence refuting claims that Father Hughes submitted an emotional, or I'm sorry, suffered an emotional breakdown and disappeared from the Cottage City community. So, um, there's a bunch of things from skeptics on if this happened or not. Um, a lot of them say that there's no credible evidence that suggested that they, the boy was ever possessed by demons or evil spirits. Uh, they felt it to be childless, childishly simple, um, and fake. So that's kind of where that ended hmm. is nobody knows if it's real or not, but I guess that's true with every All single these, possession yeah. because you don't know. That one's yeah. Yeah. That could be, that I could mean, describe any of them. Yeah. I mean the Ouija board thing, that's creepy because you can invite things in that you don't want. That's not directly tied to being possessed. No, that doesn't mean if you play with the Ouija board, you're going to be possessed. Right. So that's all on that one. All right. My next one is Michael Taylor. Uh, he was born in 1944. He became notable in England in 1974 as a result of the Osset murder case and his alleged demonic possession. Ugh. Oh, boy. Uh, Taylor lived in Osset, West Yorkshire, working as a butcher in 1974. Uh, Taylor's wife, Christine, stated to a French fellowship uh, group to which Taylor belonged that his relationship with the lay leader of the group, Marie Robinson, was carnal in nature. Michael Taylor admitted that he felt evil uh, within him, and he eventually attacked Robinson verbally, who screamed back at him. During the next meeting, Michael Taylor received an absolution, but nevertheless, his behavior continued to become more erratic. As a result, the local vicar called in other ministers experienced in deliverance and preparation to cast out the demons residing within the man. Uh, the exorcism occurred on the fifth and sixth of October, nineteen seventy-four, at St. Thomas's Church in Gauber. Uh, he was. It was headed by Father Peter Vincent, the, the Anglican priest of St. Thomas. Uh, was aided by the by a Methodist clergyman, the Reverend Raymond Smith. According to Bill Ellis, an authority on folklore and the occult in contemporary culture, the exorcist believed. Uh, that they had an all-night ceremony invoked and cast out at least 40 demons, including those of incest, bestiality, blasphemy, and lewdness. Huh. At the end, exhausted, they allowed Taylor to go home. 
although they felt there were at least three demons, insanity, murder, and violence were still left within him. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Let's let him go home. The three most dangerous ones. <laughs> Couldn't have sent him home with bestiality. <laughs> Had him let him go home with murder. So whenever they let him go home, it's in, a, in a maniacal and deranged attack, Michael had stripped off and strangled Christine. He had literally torn off her face. Whoa. There was no murder weapon involved. He gouged out her eyes and ripped out her tongue with his bare hands and tore the rest of her face off down to the bone, so much so that she was unrecognizable. Oh, my. Whilst Christine had died of shock and asphyxiation from her own blood, mercifully and quickly, Michael had turned his intentions to the Taylor pet dog, strangling it and literally ripping it limb from limb. No. He had torn his legs, uh, torn his legs off from their sockets uh, and hair and teeth and eyes from the skull were all pulled off. Um, he then left the house screaming and was found by a policeman, uh, Walker. His name was Walker, uh, a short time later. It was described as being the most horrific scene that any police officer attended has ever seen. Michael was quoted as saying, released, I am released. The evil within her has been destroyed. At his trial in March, Taylor was acquitted on the grounds of insanity. He was sent to Broadmoor Hospital for two years. He then spent another two years in a secure ward in Bradford before being released. The bizarre nature of his case attracted significant publicity. Yeah. Yeah. In July 2005, Taylor re-entered the news after being found guilty of indecently touching a teenage girl. A week into his prison sentence for the crime, Taylor, who in the years since the trial had attempted his own suicide on four separate occasions, began exhibiting the sort of strange behavior that had preceded his wife's murder in 1974. When brought back before the court, they once agreed, uh, or they once again ordered him into psychiatric treatment. Wow. That's uh, I bet they felt really bad, like ooh. the people that let him go back home. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. That's, yeah. I couldn't imagine just, you have to be insane to do that to someone yeah. and to a dog. Yeah. Because it's like. You know, that kills me. I don't know how you can physically, like, I mean, I understand physically, but mentally how you can rip your wife's face off and just like. With no eyes. tools, like with your bare hands. Ugh. Yeah, that's insane. That's anger for sure. Yeah, that's that was a rough one to read about. Hmm. Okay. My next one is probably one of the most famous ones that have gone through Hollywood. And it's the story of Annalise Michelle. Hmm. You know anything about this Mm-mm. chickadee? No. Okay. So she was a German woman who underwent Catholic exorcism rites during the year before her death. She was diagnosed with epileptic um, psychosis and had a history of psychiatric treatment, which was overall not effective. When Michelle was 16, she experienced a seizure and was diagnosed with psychosis caused by a temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, Shortly after that, she was diagnosed with depression and was treated by a psychiatric hospital. By the time she was 20, she'd become intolerant of various religious objects and began to hear voices. Hmm. Not a good sign. No. Uh, her condition worsened despite trying to put, you know, give her medication, and she became suicidal, also displaying other symptoms for which she took medication too. After taking sci- 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 <laughs> psychiatric medications for five years that failed to improve her sy- 
symptoms, um, Michelle and her family became convinced that she was possessed by the devil. Not by the devil, by a demon. As a result, her family appealed to the Catholic Church for an exorcism. It was rejected at first. After much hesitation, two priests did get permission uh, from the local bishop to go and, and check out Annalise Michelle. So she had stopped eating food and actually died due to malnourishment and dehydration. Whoa. Michael's, uh, or, sorry, Michelle's parents and the two Roman Catholic priests were found guilty of negligent homicide and were sentenced to six months in jail. Dang, all of them? Yeah, the three of them. Wow. Yeah. Um, so because of, let's see, let me skip ahead a little bit. So, um, so like I said, she, she died and she died in her home. They actually exhumed her body and the autopsy report stated that the cause was malnutrition and dehydration due to being in semi-starvation state for almost a year. Holy cow. So, back up kind of Quentin Tarantino style. <laughs> she was, um, she they were performing so many exorcisms on her. She actually got 67 exorcism sessions. Holy shit. One or two each week. Lasting for up to four hours each time. Dang. Yeah. Um, so she was aggress- aggressive. Um, she tried to hurt herself. She drank her own urine, ate insects. Um, she just was going crazy. And there was nothing that they could do to bring her back. Um, she was intolerable of sacred objects like crucifixes, as most of them are. She wasn't even able to drink the water, drink water. Like she, yeah. So that's insane. So this, um, this story actually was based upon the exorcism of Emily Rose. Hmm. Interesting. So I feel like I saw that a long time ago. Yeah, I think it's got what's her face. It's got. I know that I can see her face, but I forget her name. Um, Dexter's. Yeah. Yep. Uh, sister and or wife, depending on if you want to talk real life or fake life. Um. I, yeah, I forget her name. Um. But it's a really good movie. So after the trial, the parents asked the authorities for permission to exhume the remains of their daughter. The official reason presented by the parents to authorities was that Michelle had been buried in an undue hurry in a cheap coffin. Almost two years after the burial, on the February 25th, 1978, her remains were placed in a new oak coffin lined with tin. The official hmm. report stated that the body bore the signs of consistent deterioration. The accused exorcists were encouraged, discouraged from seeing the remains of Michelle. Arnold Renz later stated that she had been prevented from entering the mortuary. Her grave became and remains a pilgrimage site. So a lot of people go there and take pictures and do this and that. On June 6, 2013, a fire broke out in the house where Annalise Michelle lived. And although the local police said it was a case of arson, some locals attribute it to part of the exorcism. Hmm. Yeah. So um, during the trial, uh, the, the bishop had said that he was not aware of her alarming health condition when he approved of the exorcism and he and did not testify. The accused were found guilty of manslaughter 
manslaughter resulting from negligence. Um, and so they received that six months in jail and then three years of probation after that. Dang. Yeah. Hmm. So that's a sad story of basically her withering away to nothing. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, oh, another fun fact before we move on. Um, so we already talked about the exorcism of Emily Rose. There's also Requiem of Annalise and the Exorcist tapes. They're loosely based on this story. And hmm. then the first issue, the debut uh, debut album from John Lydon's post-Sex Pistols band, Public Image, contains the song Annalise about this case. Hmm. And the band Ice Nine Kills used audio clippings from Annalise's exorcism and their songs Communion of the Cursed. Whoa. That's Have you intense. heard any of those no, tapes? No. It's freaky. I don't like to listen to them because I feel like I'm opening up a door <laughs> that I can't close. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm good on hearing that stuff. <laughs> All right. The next one I have is Arne Cheyenne Johnson. Is that how you'd say that? A-R-N-E. Arne? Arne? Yeah, yeah Arne. Um, Arne. The trial of Arne Cheyenne Johnson, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, I feel like it's wrong, but uh, is also known as the Devil Made Me Do It case, it is the first known court case in the United States in which the defense sought to prove the innocence based upon the defendant's claim of a demonic possession and denial of one's personal responsibility for a crime. On November 24, 1991, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Arne Cheyenne Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for killing his landlord, Alan Bono. Whoa. Bono. Or Bono, probably. (laughs) B-O-N-O. Bono. 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 Um, According to testimony by the Glatzel family, 11-year-old David Glatzel had allegedly uh, played host to the demon that forced Johnson to kill Bono. After witnessing a number of increasingly ominous occurrences involving David, the family, exhausted and terrified, decided to enlist the aid of self-described demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ooh. Um, in a last-ditch effort to cure David, uh, the Glatzel family, among with the Warrens, then proceeded to have multiple priests petition to have the church have a formal exorcism performed on David. This process continued for several days, concluding when, according to those present, a demon fled from the child's body and took up residence within Johnson. Several months later, Johnson killed his landlord during a heated conversation. Um, his defense lawyer argued in the court that he was possessed, but the judge ruled such a defense could never be proven and was therefore infeasible in a court of law. Johnson was subsequently, subsequently convicted, though he only served five years of a 10 to 20 year sentence. Huh. Um, here's some more about the murder. On February 16th, 1981, Johnson called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Services and joined Debbie at the kennel where she worked. Along with his sister Wanda, uh, with his sister Wanda and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary, uh, Bono, the couple's landlord and Debbie's employer at the kennel, uh, bought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. After the lunch, uh, the group returned to the kennel. Debbie then took the girls to get pizza, but insisted they return quickly, anticipating trouble. When they returned, Bono, intoxicated at this point, became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let go. 
Johnson headed back to the apartment and ordered Bono to release Mary. Wanda recounted the following events to the police. Mary ran uh, for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried in vain to pull Johnson away, Johnson growling like an animal, then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono more than 20 times. Oh, my. Bono died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Johnson... Dang. Yeah. Johnson was discovered two miles from the site of murder and was held at Bridgeport Correctional Center on a bail of $125,000. This was the first murder in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. Wow. The day after the murder, Lorraine Warren informed the Brookfield police that Johnson was possessed uh, when the crime was committed. A media blitz soon surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, whose agents promised that lectures... whose agents promised lectures a book, and even a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. Uh, Martin Manella, Johnson's lawyer, received calls from all over the world about what was being called uh, the demon trial murder. Uh, Manella traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though neither went to trial. He planned to fly an exorcism specialist from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priest who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcisms if they did not cooperate with the defense. The trial took place in Connecticut's Superior Court in Danbury, beginning on October 28, 1981. Manila attempted to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession, but the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, promptly rejected this defense. Callahan argued that there's no such defense that could ever exist in a court of law due to lack of evidence and that it would be a relative and unscientific to allow a related testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, the defense chose to imply that Johnson acted in self-defense. Because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the murder. The jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981, of first-degree manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison and only served five, like I mentioned. Wow. Um... Some of the aftermath. Uh, The incident led to the creation of the television film titled The Demon Murder Case on NBC. And preparations for a feature film of the production was stalled due to internal conflicts. In 1983, uh, Gerald Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book of the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine stated that the profits from the book were shared with the family, and sources confirmed that $2,000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. $2,000? $2,000. Must not have done very well. Wow. Yeah. No. Upon the book's uh, republication in 2006 by iUniverse, David Glatzel and his brother, Carl Glatzel Jr., sued the authors of the book, uh, book's publishers, for violating their right to privacy. Um, Carl also claimed that the book had alleged that he committed criminal and abusive acts to his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax uh, concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness, and that the book presented to him or presented him as a villain because he did not believe in su- the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and would help get Johnson out of jail. According to Carl Glatzel, the publicity generated um, by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities. He is currently writing a book titled Alone to the Valley about his version of the events surrounding his brother. Lorraine Warren defended her work 
with families saying that six priests involved with the incident agreed that the time or at the time the boy was possessed and that supernatural events she described were real. Brittle, the author of The Devil in Connecticut, also wrote the book um, because the family wanted the story told. Uh, mm. And says that he possesses a video with over 100 hours of interviews with family that they signed off on as uh, signed off on so that the book would be accurate, basically. Um, Glatzel's father, Carl Glatzel Sr., denies telling the author that his son was possessed. Johnson and Debbie, now married, wholeheartedly support the Warrens' accounts um, of demonic possession and has stated that the Glatzels in question are, are suing simply for monetary purposes. Well, because they only got $2,000. <laughs> yeah. Right? They need more money. Um, and it says these events are inspiring the premise of the 2020 film the Conjuring, the devil made me do it. That's gonna be pretty cool. Yeah. I like those movies. Yeah. Wow. Interesting though. That is. It's crazy that somebody thought they could go to court with that as like the basis of. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. All right, I got one more. How many you got? That was my last. That one. That was your last one. Yeah. All right. So I'll try to go through this one quickly because I know we are. That's a woo, long one. Yeah. Two hours almost. Okay, so this is the. Tenucha Exorcism. In January 2005, 23-year-old Marashisha Cornishi nice. Ooh, moved to Tanishu Monastery. She was born into a broken family and followed her, uh, following her father's suicide, she and her mother, brother grew up in an orphanage. When she was 19, she worked as a nanny in Germany and then for a family in Banat. A friend of hers from the orphanage became a nun and encouraged her to also become a nun. Hmm. None of my friends encouraged me to become a nun because it's not happening. None friends. None. Soon after, she began giggling during mass, and by April, her mental state deteriorated. Doctors at the local psychiatric hospital diagnosed her disease as schizophrenia. Hmm. After two-week treatment, they released her into the care of the monastery, Konichi's friend also stated that she never exhibited any signs of mental illness. Her brother testified that he was with her when he saw Satan go into her. Oh. And also maintained that she suffered from demonic possession. So Daniel Petrie Conagrew was the 29-year-old priest of the monastery. And basically, to make a long story short, a decade before these events, he was the, the football player, like... Mr. Quarterback in his hometown. Um, basically, he was a ladies' man. Hmm. A year, um, a couple years before, he he was a businessman from his hometown, and they recruited him to build this monastery in the hills of near the city. Um, he ended up becoming ordained by a local bishop who accept, uh, expected that he would continue his studies. Nevertheless, he gave up his university education in order to devote himself to running the monastery. Hmm. In 2003, Father Conagrew had some disputes with the diocese. When the bishop came to read him the canon law, he argued that the rules were 19th century innovations made by the Freemasonry. The original community of monks dissolved as they left uh, to become priests instead. Conagu organized a community of nuns who were completely devout to him. Remember, he's a ladies' man. Hmm. 
Father Conagrew thought that it was not just a mental illness, but rather that Cornishi was possessed by Satan. He would later, later claim that you can't take the devil out of people with pills, and that an exorcism was necessary. In order to restrain her from violent movements, including those causing her to hit herself, the nuns bound her hands and feet and locked her in a room as they participated in the liturgy commemorating the ascension of Jesus. A few days later, they changed her, chained her to a cross with her arms stretched and carried her into the church so they could anoint her. According to Sister Nicolette, Cornishi had been restrained in the same manner that others who were demonically possessed were. Sister Arkalunu stated that had Cornishia not been restrained, she could have either killed herself or killed somebody else. With regard to Cornishi, Sister Arkanulu stated, <laughs> these are so hard, that Arena knew that she was possessed by evil spirits because she was begging us to tie her up and help her. Hmm. Her wrists and forehead were then anointed with holy oil, and she was kept in the church for three days. They put a towel into her mouth to stop her from cursing and prayed to cast out the devil as they wet her lips with holy water. Cornishi was then moved to her room and untied. She was, according to Father Conagrew, cured. She was later given bread and tea and fainted after drinking. The nuns could not arouse her and sentenced that, sensed that her pulse was weak, and as a result, they called an ambulance. While in the ambulance, she was administered six doses of adrenaline. That's a lot. Damn. By the time she reached the hospital, she was dead. Wow. The police were notified by doctors uh, at the hospital whenever they noticed the marks on her wrist and her ankles. The 2005 autopsy claimed that she had died of dehydration, exhaustion, and a lack of oxygen. Huh. Father Conagrew and the four nuns who helped him were charged with murder and depriving a person with liberty. Prosecutors sought a life sentence um, for Conagrew, but he was sentenced to in 2007 to 14 years in prison, while the nuns were sentenced to between five and eight years. Wow. That's crazy. That is crazy. Um, many individuals were present in the courtroom to support Father Conagrew and were distraught whenever the verdict was read. Um, the Court of Appeals reduced his sentence to seven years, and Conagrew was freed on parole in 2011 after serving two-thirds of his punishment. As Mauricia was lowered into her grave during her funeral, claps of thunder were heard, huh. leading Conagrew to conclude that the will of God had been done. 2014, it was found that the cause of death was actually due to an overdose of adrenaline. Wow. Bummer. Too much. Um, because it was given in the ambulance when the coroner coroner stated, I was part of the team who handled the exhumation of the nun's body. It was concluded that the woman died of an overdose of adrenaline. Don't ask me why. I don't know why the judges did not take that into account. And then Father Conagrew, who just served a bunch of time, stated that his biggest mistake was calling the ambulance because it killed her. Dang. Had I not called the ambulance, she would have been well now. In Tenachu, many people continue to maintain that Cornishi was indeed possessed. In 2012, a movie called Beyond the Hills uh, was based on the novels written by the Tanishi case. Uh, The Crucifixion, released in 2017, is also based on this case. Wow, that's interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So I wonder if they got any, like, money back. Not money, but you know what I mean? Compensation. Yeah, for being in prison for so long. 
they they would have a case. Yeah. They would. Have, they're not just going to give it to them. They're going to have to take them to court. Yeah, man, I would. That's crazy. Not saying what they did was probably right, but they were charged for murder whenever yeah. it wasn't their fault. Yeah, that's messed up. I've yeah. never heard that one. That's ooh. yeah. That's scary. To mm-hmm. try to help somebody, then you go to jail for murdering them. Right. Well, it's the same, I guess, with the ambulance. Though they didn't mean to. No, they were trying. To they do were the right trying thing. to save her. Yeah. So. But six doses, that seems like too That's much. That's a lot. But I guess if you're dead, what's one more to try to, like, save your life? You I don't know? know. I don't know either. But that was a couple from history. History. There's a couple Mysteries. of those that would be interesting to do whole episodes on, I think. Like Michael Taylor. Yeah, I agree. There's, we kind of skimmed through some of them because there's, like, tons of information. Yeah. And we didn't want this to be a five-hour episode, so... Yeah, there's a lot. Ooh, sorry, I was yawning. This episode's too long. Um, <laughs> there was a lot more on the early, early years, like 17th century yeah. stuff. That stuff, for some reason, isn't as interesting to me. I think a lot of it is because it's so lengthy on them trying to prove that it's demonic yeah. and the witch trial stuff. It's and just like almost to- too far removed from our reality now. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't even seem real. It's yeah. like... There's no science behind any of it. It's just people saying somebody's possessed. So it's... Yeah. I'd really like to do an episode on Ed and Lorraine. Oh, yeah. That'd be interesting. I think that would be... Yeah. I think some of their cases, though, are long, too, where they could be just full episodes. Right. Yeah. But... All right. You got anything else? I don't think so. Just make sure to uh, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on and... Yep, give us a, a like, comment, share. Mm-hmm. Send us an email, mysteryhistorypod at gmail.com. I love to read those. And um, thanks for sticking with us on this long-ass <laughs> episode. Yep, so, we appreciate you. Yep. All right, y'all, have a good week. See you next week.